Kentucky. First up, though, we are taking a look at something that is being discussed right now at Vancouver City Council. Council is in a recess, but they're talking about development guidelines and particularly proposals that have social housing components if they should be allowed to go ahead without a public hearing and talking about buildings up to 12 stories in height. Well, my first guest is Karen Finnan, a concerned citizen uh, about this particular uh, proposal in front of council. Karen is on the line with us now. Thank you so much for being here. Jill, thanks for having me. Uh, Is it a specific building that you have concerns about, or is it the policy change, the the possibility of this change, that any uh, building with a a specific social housing component could go ahead without public hearing? We're concerned about the policy in general, and we do have specific concerns in the neighbourhood where I live. And what neighbourhood is that? So I live in Kitsilano, and there's already 15 social housing projects in Kitsilano, And these projects have blended seamlessly into our community because they've been built on the scale of the surrounding community. So I'm a member of a strata council that recognizes the need for more affordable housing options in Vancouver. And we often get painted with the NIMBY brush uh, that we're people who have planted our stake in the city and now we want to slam the door behind us. Uh, our view is is the only two options are not nimbyism versus throwing the door wide open to rapid, ill-considered construction of social housing that fails to take into account the views of community members and the character of existing neighbourhoods. As you may be aware, Jill, uh, Kitsilano is primarily a single-family and three- and four-storey community. So a 12-storey building in our community uh, is, would certainly be out of character, and maybe, it, maybe that's justified. But what we want is our right to community consultation, and what we see here is the city reducing uh, the ability for the community to have consultation on rezoning issues. Uh, one of the quotes that's been used quite a bit by the Vancouver councillor uh, behind this motion, uh, Christine Boyle, uh, with the backing of the mayor, uh, he appears to be in favour of this as well, is talking about the fact that the policies the way they are right now uh, makes it much easier to build a huge house, easier to build a mansion rather than much needed housing. What, how do you respond to that that kind of argument? Well, I I really think that's a red herring. We're not talking about building huge houses. We're talking about community consultation to throw it out as, again, and I I see it as an attack and nimbyism and, oh, the elite Kitsilano residents. That's not what this is about. This is about a democracy. Uh, Vancouver City Councillors would do well to remember that they've been elected by those of us who are more fortunate in the community, as well to represent those who are of lower income and may suffer from homelessness. We are all citizens of this city, and all of our views must be considered. Do you think that there is room for for growth as far as the, the height of buildings when we're talking about, and I, and I get what you're saying, and I think people, anybody that's familiar with Kitsilano uh, can picture exactly what you're saying about the low-level uh, rental or low-level apartment buildings, a lot of single-family housing, uh, but you don't have to go too far uh, to get into those higher buildings, 12-story buildings, whether we're talking Carisdale, uh, Fairview Slopes, uh, certainly there was a lot of uh, feedback on the 28th Stout a tower, a 28-story building, uh, Birch and Broadway. Um, how do we get to the place where we all can agree, I think, that more housing is needed? How do we get to a place where maybe uh, communities embrace taller buildings? Well, what I had suggested at the April 20th meeting where the city voted uh, to have automatic rezoning for six stories 
of social housing is I said, well, why isn't this, the taller buildings being uh, put on the corridors? Uh, I, I think most people could agree with the increased density on the, co- the corridors as opposed to planting it in the middle of a single-family home neighborhood or uh, a neighborhood that has three- or four-story strata buildings. Uh, I think what Vancouverites also may not understand is the definition of social housing currently uh, as the working definition of the city actually only requires 30% of these 12-story buildings to be below market rental. 70% of that building can be market rental housing. So what can happen here is existing old stock of apartment buildings uh, that are reasonably affordable rentals in Kitsilano, those folks will be uh, evicted to make way for a 12-story building by a developer who's going to benefit from uh, 70% of that building being market rental. And again, getting back to this, and and I've seen arguments on both sides, it does seem strange that the city would just do away with the public hearing process in that that is the the time when the public can come forward. I I mean, public can write letters and send in an email to council if they want, but that is the public hearing that has always been part of the development process. Is Is it the getting rid of that specifically for these kind of developments or would it be for any development? Well, we'd like to see consultation on any type of development that's in the community. That's the democratic process. There's another aspect um, that has not received attention about these amendments to uh, bylaws allowing social housing at various heights is uh, it came up at the April 20th meeting of the city when they passed the six-story rezoning exemption. Uh, The definition of social housing is not clear as to whether or not supportive housing for the homeless is included. Supportive housing is generally a type of social housing. When I raised the issue of the lack of clarity in the definition at the, or the April 20th meeting, a city representative actually acknowledged that, well, yes, the definition isn't clear. So I suggested the definition be referred back to council for clarification before the motion passed. In my neighborhood, there is a 12-story supportive housing for the hardest-to-house homeless being proposed at Arbutus and 7th. So we would like to know, are you passing a rezoning bylaw that's going to permit housing for the homeless uh, to be built to 12 stories without that additional ability for public consultation, public ideas into what type of supportive housing and what supports there will be for individuals that are placed in these types of projects? So that's another concern that I think has received less attention and the city has not clarified uh, where supportive housing falls within this uh, broad definition of social housing. Uh, that building that you, you referenced too has had a, a lot of people questioning exactly that, uh, what supports will be in place, uh, what what uh, it will look like. Uh, so is it your understanding if this uh, goes ahead at council that they remove the requirement for a public hearing when we're talking about buildings up to 12 stories, that that building at 7th and Arbutus would then be rubber stamped and go ahead? Well, Jill, that's the big question, isn't it? So the city hasn't clarified that for us. And sadly, BC Housing has been um, nearly completely opaque in terms of having any real public consultation. So now we're also facing 
the same problem with the city. We don't know, is the city going to uh, plow through with approving 12 stories before we've had any input? For example, my strata project, uh, we would like to have input into the height and uh, the nature of the residence in the building because it's going to be 20, uh, 20 metres from an elementary school, 20 metres from a toddler park and right adjacent to the Arbutus Greenway. We're losing another opportunity yet, it seems, if this 12-story bylaw uh, in fact applies to this type of project, to have some input into the development in our neighbourhood. Uh, do you think there would be as much concern about this if we were talking about fully uh, market buildings? Is the concern because of the social housing component? Uh, as I said, my particular project, and I can't speak for everyone, but we we understand the need for below market rentals. There has to be somebody, there needs to be a barista to make your coffee at Starbucks, people to work in your grocery stores, uh, but build we can't have a scattergun approach where uh, the, the character, the essential character of a neighborhood is lost without any type of public consultation. People in these neighborhoods that will be affected are prepared to come along with the city, but don't make us feel like you are shutting us out of the consultation process. And frankly, it feels like the city is taking advantage of the pandemic to push through its agenda when it knows the public can't turn up and talk to them face to face. All right, Karen, we'll be following to see uh, what happens uh, with this discussion and this vote at Council. Thanks for joining us, though, to talk more about this. I appreciate your time. Thank you for the opportunity, Jill. Well, yesterday on the program, we were talking about a new research co-poll, not a huge poll, 400 people, an online survey, but it was asking people about the temporary separated bike lane in Stanley Park. That particular poll showed a lot of people supporting the bike lane, but we know there is opposition as well. We've talked about the businesses in Stanley Park that have commenced legal action against the park board, saying the reconfiguration of the traffic has meant their business has been Decimated. We've also talked to groups representing people with different disabilities, saying their access to the park has also been greatly diminished because of the bike lane and because of how difficult it is to get into that park. Well, another group is going to the Human Rights Commission over the bike lane, and they are represented by Vancouver lawyer Phil Rankin, who joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jill. I, I represent five seniors and people with severe disabilities bringing a complaint against the Vancouver Parks Board and the City of Vancouver for preventing access by car to Stanley Park. And we're basically uh, fighting the city, who was fighting us tooth and nail, and it's become a big deal. Our, our hearing has now been put off till next January, which will be after the proposed reopening that's coming up uh, soon. And we're funding basically a GoFundMe campaign, which is uh, Keep Stanley Park for All, not just for people that ride bikes. Uh, we have a strict, a fairly big opposition. The Hub Bike Group in Vancouver, ironically, gets about a half a million dollars of the city is supporting this bike lane change, which is completely discriminatory because Section 8 of the Human Rights Act says that disabled and seniors should be able to get the same services as able-bodied people. And, of course, denying their access to the park for two months and continuing to close lanes is a denial of that access. And it's a bit ironic considering that the same park sport is as homeless people living in the park has now decided to not let people who are handicapped or disabled actually go to the park. So uh, we're obviously we're outraged and our people include uh, patients with MS, uh, amputations, uh, a heart transplant person, a person with dementia. And there are many thousands of people like that 
And so we have basically, uh, we do not accept that we are an anti-bike group. We, the Stanley Park was open, but bikes in both lanes, and we are not against bikes, but we are against closing off the lanes. Uh, a park that is uh, considered to be one of the best parks of the world, I think it was voted as the best park of the world, uh, has 3 million visitors a year and about 2,900,000 come by car for all kinds of things, um, birthday parties and weddings and photographs of one type or another and visitors and tourists and tourist bus and to be put into one lane of traffic and to share it. And and we don't even share it because in the current, uh, when the one lane is created, the, the bicyclists that like to go fast stay with the cars and the other bike lane is used by other people. And what happens is that the uh, poor guy with a horse and uh, carriage uh, cars veer into the uh, bike lanes to get around him and tour buses get tied up and and it's a big mess and plus about a third of the park is now empty we can't go to it because uh from separately from lost lagoon to beach avenue we're not um, you can't get there by car you can't go to the to the park with your grandchildren where the where the thing where the uh, playgrounds are and you also can't get on to beach avenue so we're also denied english bay to sunset beach no one can just go for a drive there and they already had a bike lane there. So we've been portrayed as sort of anti-climate. This has got nothing to do with climate change. Andrew Weaver uh, mentioned that in a recent uh, interview, said that this closing of Stanley Park does not do anything for climate change or emissions from cars. Most of the cars now that are, can't get into the park uh, only through Georgia Street, in fact, have to drive much further to get around to the part of the park they can, can come into it. So it's probably even more admissions. And uh, the fact is, they've never even did a study of emissions, but that's the rationale they're using for closing it again. And so we're we're stuck with this uh, situation, and we're having to battle with uh, well-paid, funded city lawyers and a well-paid uh, one, one-trick pony, which is basically the bike group. And as we said, we're not against biking. We're not against the environment, but we are against discrimination against our people. Uh, so what, why was the decision made then as far as to take this to the Human Rights Commission? I know in other cases with the businesses, there's legal action that's been filed as well. What do you hope that the, the Human Rights Commission will solve? Well, one thing is the, the, the business interests don't have a right to go to the Human Rights Commission. A business doesn't have a human right. And so the Human Rights Commission, Section 8, says that nobody can be denied services available to the public, which uh, on basis of various discriminations, race being one of them, but let's just go to the ones we're talking about, which is basically uh, disability and seniors. And so that's why we chose to go there. We may intervene in the uh, other cases, but um, that's also expensive. A lot of the problem is, is that we're very meager funds and, and the Human Rights Commission is uh, affordable as a means of litigation, whereas the courts are very, very expensive and, uh, and these people don't have any money, of course. So that's one of the reasons we didn't go straight to court. And the other reasons we think we have a good human rights complaint. And we also think that there's a good legal complaint to be made. If we had the proper funding, we would probably proceed with that because the charter, Section 15 of the charter guarantees equality for all. Uh, Your reader should probably understand that that Stanley Park is not a local park. It is a federal park owned by the federal government of Canada, which is leased to Vancouver for all the people of Canada, it's a it's a destination park for all people in Canada, and the only and we have the only park sport in Canada is in Vancouver. And the reason why we have a park sport is because our park Stanley Park is so special that we want a, a dedicated political body to protect the park for everybody, all citizens. And what we have is a park sport that's doing exactly the opposite. Well, a, a park sport other than John Cooper and Tricia Parker, who 
actually have been very good on this issue. Uh, and again, you mentioned that uh, the hearing won't be held until January, which is after this will be uh, underway. Uh, is the commission, does it have the power to actually uh, force the decision to, to be reversed? Or what could, the, if, if the commission ruled in your favor, what could they do? They can. They could issue a declaration saying that the closure of the park uh, was a discriminatory act. They can fine the parks board. They could give a little bit of compensation to each of the people, but they can't probably force the park to reopen. But they can. They can embarrass the park because what's happened now is people have lost the message. They see the message as basically uh, car owners versus bikers instead of the disabled needing rights and and the and the park being enjoyed by everyone. They've, they managed to twist the narrative to such a way as that people are reluctant to uh, un- and don't understand that this is really an issue about everybody having access to the park. There was never an issue with with bikes in the park. We've we've shared the roads with bikes, and bikes been there for years. And when they closed it down last, when they reopened last September twenty second, and returned to two lanes with bikes, bicycles were there, and so a lot of people actually prefer the seawall. So we're, it's not an anti biker thing. It's an anti-discriminatory thing, and it's and it's it's been made into and the rationale for uh, closing the park originally last April 22nd for two months was it had something to do with COVID. Well, it's ridiculous. Of course, when you're in a car, you don't spread COVID. If you drive to the park with your spouse and just to get out, you're not spreading COVID. But that was the excuse they used for two months, and now they've got another excuse, which is climate change. And as Andrew Weaver said, this has nothing to do with climate change. They have produced one study that showed that they will save one particle, one millionth of a particle of carbon. I, I think originally the the reasoning that was given about the, the pandemic was because they stopped bikes on the seawall path, and that was to give bikes a place to cycle. But you're right, at this point, bikes are back on the seawall path now as well. So it, it, it's yeah. back to how it was pre-pandemic. And even then, and even then in short, and out, and outdoor effects of, re, of infection rates are very, very low, even if they were even if they did it for that reason. We have shown scientifically that, that, that when you're outside walking and you're not spreading COVID, the distancing is not that important outside. It's when you're in windy places. Obviously, in, in closed areas, that's different, or restaurants and things like that. But this is basically, there's been many phony excuses for basically discriminating against uh, our clients and other seniors. And there's all kinds of people that can't bring human rights complaints, like people that just want to have picnics with their grandchildren. They can't walk from Lost Lagoon parking or from the uh, beat uh, from the, where the parking lots are now. And also the third of the parking lots are gone and, and much of the handicap parking is gone. And if you can't get over, uh, you can't only enter the park at Georgia street or exit on Georgia street, which is causing a lot of traffic problems. And, and it's, and we can't use English beta on the beach. I haven't been along with my wife who's got is disabled as well. And I'm partially disabled. I haven't been able to go by English Bay for over almost two years now. And these decisions are being made by people who say that they have the best interests of the, of the public at heart. And actually, they may be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. And, and it's really, we've got to the craziness is that our parks are being used for places to live. But people that, that are ordinary citizens of Vancouver can't get into the same park. Well, we are going to watch and see uh, what happens with this, as well as the other action that's uh, being taken uh, against uh, this idea and this uh, what's happening in the park. Uh, We'll check back with you uh, again. Phil Rankin, thanks so much for your time and for coming on the show today. 
Okay, thank you very much. Well, a Vancouver woman is speaking out, going public with a story, and it is horrifying and shows just how quickly things can change. One minute you're having dinner with friends, having a lovely evening. The next you are being rushed to the hospital with severe injuries. And joining me to talk about what happened to her, as well as why she wants this story to go public and why she wants to help others who might find themselves in any kind of similar situation. Uh, Joining me is Angelica Vargas. Thank you so much for being here to share your story. Thank you for having me. Uh, Can you explain a little bit? uh, I wanted to talk to you about what was in the local paper about what you went through uh, several months ago. Can you explain what happened that evening, uh, the night that your dress caught fire? Yes, was actually was 15 months ago, and I was in, in a dinner at a friend's house, and I was wearing a long dress all night. When I was about to leave uh, my friend's house, uh, I was going to say goodbye to one of them, and my friend was sitting beside the fireplace. So I stand up behind her, and I didn't notice there were some candles on the floor. And um, yeah, when just I just realized that I, I was on fire. That was like in, in seconds. When I, I, I look at behind me, like so my, my dress caught fire and when I was I looked when my reaction was running all over the place, I was asking and screaming for help and but my friends didn't grab me. They couldn't grab me. So uh, suddenly I realized when I was in the in a bathtub, my friends put uh, wet towels all over my body. They called 911. And thank God my friend were, uh, my friend's house was like super close to the BG, BGH. So the ambulance was like 10 minutes arriving. 10 minutes was super fast. And you were taken to the hospital uh, with with severe burns. That just uh, I, I can't even imagine what you were going through at that point. What was the recovery like from that point on? My recovery has been a long recovery. Um, uh, with, uh, I spent three months in the hospital, then one man in Geostrom, uh, and I have been doing uh, physio, full-time physio for almost 10 months. And now I, I got discharged from U.S. Strand and, and I'm doing my physio by myself. I have to stretch every single day. day. I have to stretch because my skin is still super tight. Uh, but where that's part of the recovery. I'm still wearing my, my garments, the compressive socks or ties. Uh, that's the main uh, main main part of my recovery is the, the garment that we have to wear because because of the burns. And yeah, so it, it hasn't been difficult, but I'm getting there. It sounds like you, you really have such a positive attitude and outlook on, on what happened. And that was another reason why I wanted to talk to you about this, because you referenced as well, it was very difficult for you to look at the burns, to, to see the damage that had been done. But you also wanted to make sure anybody else that might be in this scenario or might have also suffered burns knows that you can recover and you can move on from this. Yeah, so I will say that never give up. It's going to be a long journey. Uh, but leave have given them a, a new opportunity to live, right? So they will come for sure, like stronger people. And also, I would like to say that there is a support community for us, for all born, born survivors, um, and like the Born Fund, right? 
And for me, at least, it has been very helpful and part of my healing to be in contact with people who have gone through the same situation. So, yeah, we say, like, you have to guys go through it and for sure they will make it. How important was it or how how much did it really help you as far as having that support and having uh, others that, that you could share with and, and others that kind of understand what you went through? Well, for me, it, is, it was super important to join this community because I didn't feel like I was by myself, right? There, there is a, a lot of people like me, like with the same situation and traumas they have built suffering and, and going through the same situation. So it's, it's so nice to feel that I'm not by myself, right? That I wasn't the only one. So uh, it's very inspiring for me and, and it's nice to talk to people like me. And uh, just uh, before I let you go, how are you doing now as far as uh, getting back to uh, getting back to some kind of, of, of life similar to what you had before and your recovery looking forward? So I'm I'm doing way better. My my ankles are still pretty tight because of my Achilles tendon, and yeah, I'm still walking a little bit on my toes. But that's why I'm going back to Geostrom for physio. Uh, yes, and I'm doing my physio every single day, walking and stretching a lot. That's the key for born people. It's so amazing to talk to you and to to look at what you went through. And and something I think that people will see this story or hear this story, uh, that could have happened to anybody. I mean, this was a candle on the floor at at a get-together. It really could happen to anybody and how your life changed in such, just changed in one moment. Yeah, yeah. That's why we have to live our lives like if they were the the last day of your of your life, right? Like you have to enjoy it and yeah, and be aware if you're putting candles or you have candles in your place or home or at the office, be aware that it has to be not on the floor. Like it has to be that you can see, right? Like more if you have kids at at home or, or with kids around you, that will be, yeah, you have to be careful. Angelica, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us to talk on the program today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Well, it was last year. I don't remember the exact date. I could look it up. But last year when we covered a story on this radio station, on this show, about a woman who got a dog during the pandemic and, like many other people, got the dog, was working from home, was looking for companionship. The dog was a puppy. The puppy grew and grew and ended up exceeding the strata limits on heights. She ended up selling her condo and moving. Uh, This is a similar case, but not quite the same. Earlier, I think I alluded to the fact this was another case of a dog growing past the strata requirements. It's not. Uh, This is a 13-year-old dog, but the strata now says this dog is too tall and needs to be removed. So we are joined by the owner of the dog, Jackie Clark, and animal law lawyer, Rebecca Bretter. Thanks, both of you, for coming coming on the program today. Thank you for having us. Uh, Jackie, I want to start with you. You sent me a picture of your dog and full disclosure, I think everyone knows I'm a huge dog lover. What Mm -hmm. a beautiful, beautiful dog. This is a 13-year-old. She looks to be a black lab? Yes, she is. So what has happened then? She's 13, so she's not had any growth spurts in uh, in the recent past. What's going on with the strata? So what happened is um, three years ago, we bought this townhouse in Walnut Grove and uh, we signed off on the measurements for the dog because it said that she needed to be 16 inches at the shoulder. 
And we measured her 16 inches to the top of her leg. But um, right before we did, we, we did like a month of rentals to the house. And just before we were actually going to move in, um, somebody said something to us. And it was something about that they start, they measure at the back of the neck on the dog, not like the withers on a horse. It's, it's not on the leg. It's on the back of the neck. Well, we remeasured our dog, and she's four inches higher than at the shoulder. And um, we were um, we were told almost well. We well we didn't quite know what to do. So we went. We wrote a letter and we went to our management company for the Strata. And um, we were just going to drop the letter off. We ended up speaking with someone there, and we were told to move in. They said move in. Keep your head down. The, the dog will be fine and everything will be great. Don't worry about it. So that's exactly what we did. And we were, had moved in only a matter of a couple of days. And our dog barked at someone who was walking by our backyard. One bark. That was it. And there was a complaint. And um, the strata came and they do like a welcome greet and they come and welcome us. And we were told right then that the dog was too big and she had to go. Um, it was it was kind of devastating for us because we love this community and we love this complex. We just love it. Um, so we um, put our house up for sale. We contacted a lawyer. Um, we've been paying fines for oh well, it's well over. It's in the thousands of what we've paid in fines. And we're actually also not on property more than almost six months out of the year. But when we got home on um, April 1st, within a week, we got a letter saying that they're going to start finding us every seven days, not just every month. So um, I'm retired. We can't afford this. So it's, it's just been a, a roller coaster ride for us. And the problem is, is that we love this place. We don't want to move. And we did get an offer on our house um, before COVID, but it was well below market value and we couldn't afford to take a huge loss. So we're stuck. Uh, Let's bring Rebecca in on this because Rebecca, I know you've dealt with similar situations. So where do you think the breakdown is here? Is it the clarity over how you measure the height of a dog? Is it the fact that they were told to move in and then there was a complaint? How do you break all of this down? Yeah, that, that's such a good question. And this is a classic example of how you have two key issues. One being how uh, a person who's about to move in and bought a strata is with good hearted, good intentions, talking to the strata management company, being totally open and honest. And then the strata management company going, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Just move in. And then so like Jackie and her husband did, they relied on that statement now to their detriment. So that I see that quite often, relying on strata management's word that everything will be okay, and then they turn around later saying, oh, well, no, we never said that, and it's not okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the bylaw itself, I, I read these bylaws, so Jackie and I and, and her husband, we talked yesterday about this, and I, I read the bylaws, and the bylaws just talk about that the maximum height of any pet is 16 inches at the shoulder. doesn't talk about how to measure or any of that, and the rest of the bylaw is pretty vague. 
and that particular provision too. It would be one thing if the bylaw actually told people how to measure their animal. It's another thing when it just says maximum height is 16 inches, not to mention it's totally arbitrary. Like, what's the, why? <laughs> so, I mean, in this case, what Jackie didn't mention also is that other than that one barking incident, which was like, what dog doesn't bark seriously when someone walks by your, your place? Um, there have been absolutely no incidents with this dog. This is a lovely, gentle, friendly dog. Um, they're away for six months of the year also. They're not bothering anyone. And not only are they not bothering, but there are kind-hearted people in that complex who don't even really know them, but they took it on to start a petition going around to residents and getting residents to, um, to help them out and to try and appeal this, this bylaw. So really what it comes down to in this particular case and in many cases like this is that you have to take a close look at if you relied on a strata property management statement and they, even if it's not in writing orally, if they actually told you it's going to be okay, be careful, but you have, they have a strong case. Jackie has a strong case here because they relied on the strata's statements to their detriment and the bylaws themselves suck. I mean, they are so vague that to the point that they're unenforceable. Well, and that's what I was thinking. And and every time we talk about this, and I'm sure we will get calls and email to the, to this, uh, to um, the point two people saying you should have known the rules, you should have followed the rules. So you can't do this and then, then claim that you didn't know. But in this case, what does seem different is the measurement, because if someone was to say, measure your arm to the shoulder, that doesn't mean measure your arm to the back of your neck is there is there not some if it's unclear could they not say our dog is 16 inches to the shoulder yeah of course they can and it's up to the strata i i think the strata is going to know here once i mean we're, we're start we're let's just say we are exploring our legal options so i wasn't the lawyer that they that jackie mentioned before i never would have advised to pay the fines but um so we we're certainly exploring our legal options because this is such it's a heartbreaking case and it's totally unfair for someone like jackie and her husband and uh and their dog so, Jackie, have there been any other issues other than the one time the dog barked? No, no, not at all. She's, she's, she's kind and gentle. We've never had an issue anywhere with her. And I want to put in that, the you know, we were feeling very, um, I don't know, like we were the troublemakers here and everybody was kind of... Um, you know, thinking, like you said, that we had moved in knowing what we were doing and we were just trying to push the system kind of deal. And we found out since, you know, a lot of, especially in the last while, the last month, that the majority of people here seem to be sympathetic to us and think that she's a lovely dog and that there shouldn't be an issue. It should be the animal's temperament, not the size. Right, exactly. Can I jump in and say yeah. one more thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in really when you look, when you live in a condominium complex, and every condominium complex has bylaws, the overall purpose of having those bylaws is to ensure that people living in close quarters can get along and that people aren't interfering with each other's use and enjoyment of each other's properties. And that's fundamentally what matters. And this is why cases like this drive me nuts. Because here we have a 13-year-old 
dog (laughs) who hasn't caused any problems, totally sweet. And Jackie and her husband and her dog are not interfering with anyone's use and enjoyment of their property. And really, that's what ultimately matters. Not this ridiculous bylaw that says no pet can be taller than 16 inches at the shoulder and it doesn't even tell you how to measure uh, measure that. Is there a concern, and I'm just trying to take the other side on mm-hmm. this, is there a concern, though, if the strata was to let this go, that somebody could move in next month or five months from now with a dog that's taller than 16 inches that is a nuisance dog and say, well, too bad, you're letting them stay here with their dog that's 20 inches, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I get what the strata is trying to do. It's their job to enforce the bylaws as best as they can and in a uniform way. But at the same time, and there's always a but, is that you have to use common sense. And sometimes exceptions are made. And like I said, fundamentally what this comes down to is, is there unreasonable interference with someone else's use and enjoyment of their property? No, there isn't. And not to mention that, like I said, their bylaw in in this regard absolutely sucks because it's very vague. Uh, So, Jackie, you mentioned you and your husband have paid the thousands of dollars in fines. You attempted to sell the place. What do you do now at this point? I don't know. (laughs) Well, we are, I'll jump in, we are exploring, let's just say we're exploring our legal Mm -hmm. options right now. Do you think, Rebecca, there needs to be a bigger conversation? Because this comes up as well, not just height and unclear rules on how to measure a dog, but it's been one of the topics as well. Even stratas that have size requirements or or a lot of them have weight requirements, the dog can't be more than 30 pounds or 25 pounds, which has never really made sense to me because you can have a problem dog that weighs 12 pounds. You can have a Great Dane that's the sweetest dog on the planet. Yeah, exactly. I I know. And that's why those types of bylaws are really arbitrary. And I think I've said it before to you and at other times that bylaws like this, like whether it's height or weight, let's talk about weight for a second. So you have a bylaw that says you can't have a dog that weighs more than 30 pounds. You give that dog a little bit too many doggy treats and he gains five or 10 pounds then what, you're going to remove the dog because he's a bit overweight because he had too many dog treats, yet you have these chihuahuas that are barky and aggressive and bite people's ankles and bite other dogs, and they're fine just because they're like, you know, 15 pounds. Again, it really comes down to, and this is what we all have to keep in mind, is are the neighbors being neighborly Are they interfering with the use and enjoyment of someone else's property? That's really what it comes down to. And ultimately, I I won't be surprised if our laws in the next several years change in order to uh, not allow uh, pet prohibitions and, and bylaws like these. All right. Well, we'll be waiting to see what happens uh, with this case. Thanks to both of you so much for coming on. And uh, let us know if there is any resolution to this. Again, we'll be watching for that. Thank you.
Thanks, Jill. You may have been hearing about this in the news. Some residents of an area around 12th Avenue in Slocan in Vancouver say they are being evicted by the city, but they have nowhere else to go. Talking about people who have been living in that area in RVs for quite some time. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about that is William Cook, one of the residents of one of those RVs. William, thank you so much for joining us, for being with us today. Hey, thank you. It's good to get the word out. Uh, Well, it's definitely uh, getting more attention, I think, probably because of the notices that the city has handed out. Before we get to that, though, can you explain a little bit how how long you've been there and and what were the circumstances that led to you living in that RV? Well, to be honest, uh, I've always always wanted to be in an RV from a very young age, uh, except I quickly got into a family as a younger man. And had kids and everything, couldn't do it. Well, after two divorces, I, there was nothing left to hold me back, and I bought this RV, and I've been in it since. And have you been at 12th and Slocan for most of the time? Uh, between 12th and Slocan and just up the street at our private residence property. And what one, which of those would you prefer? Oh, on the street's way better. Uh, how come? Uh... You're exposed to more of your uh, community by, by being front and center. Um, I, I build stuff, and uh, I fix a lot of people's vehicles and stuff driving by, so it's good exposure for that. It brings the community in. Uh, it's just it's a better exposure to the community. How would you describe the, the surrounding area? Because some of the concerns, and the city has, has said this as well, that that's part of the reason for uh, the eviction, is that the area around where some of these RVs is, uh, is uh, a little bit, uh, there's, there's garbage and it's perhaps not sanitary. Yeah, I can, I can see the public buying into that quite easily, but uh, I've been a plumber for 35 years. I know the system inside and out, and I actually take care of the sanitary needs of our community and I disposed of everything properly. I even showed the city and the uh, uh, law enforcement, this is how I do it, and they both agreed that that was the right way to do it. So I can assure you, our sanitary is taken care of in a proper manner. For the extra clutter, i, I got to admit, I'm as guilty as anyone. I have more clutter around my unit than anybody else. But I'm super busy helping the community do many other things, and which requires you know, some material, some stock, and um, there's just not enough time in the day. I'm, I'm busy all day, every day, helping out. And and I got a little clutter to show for it. So when you got the eviction notice or the notice from the city saying that these RVs have to be gone by, I believe the date is May 26th, that, that that's the, the day the city is going to start enforcement. What was your response to that? Uh, my response was um, they're, they're going to have to come in and do something very extreme to remove me because uh, this is my rights to be here. This is the choice I made. Uh, if you look at everybody, what everybody else is doing uh, business-wise and whatnot, they're doing the same thing I'm doing. They're occupying a set amount of road with their insured vehicle, and nobody's bugging them. they got all these other trucks around here that take as much space as mine do. It's as tall as everything as mine is, and that there's not never a ticket on them. They've got U-Haul's got 10 trucks right beside me here. No ticket on them. They're not getting evicted. Why is this? Why am I getting evicted? So, like I said, they're going to have to come in and, and show me a real strong reason why I should have to drive my motorhome away. Is there something specific about 12th and Slocan that draws people in that? Is it a community and it's where people in RVs have decided 
to stay there because somebody might hear this and think, well, why not just go to a different part of the city where there's not as much attention and kind of uh, quietly go about your life that way? Well, I got to be honest, people heard about me being able to fix many things. And some people have come to this neighborhood just to be around me because they, they don't have the know-how or the money to do their own repairs. And they congregate around me because they know I can take care of their needs. And uh, it's just this community built over the last few years, and here we are. So what do you, how do you anticipate things playing out if the enforcement arrives, if the city does come and try and enforce this on May 26th? I can see uh, some people who are not as passionate about their rights being easily led away. Uh, I know there's a set amount of us that are going to stand strong and uh, make sure that they have to do everything it takes to get us to leave and show us good good reason for it. I know some of us are going to be standing strong, and I'm certainly one of them. Um, and that's all we can do, and watch it play out, and hopefully, you know, keep trying to defend our rights until uh, our, our voice is heard. Uh, William, I wanted to ask you too, I know uh, Listen Chen, who's a spokesperson with the Red Braid Alliance, was the, originally the person who uh, alerted us or was talking to us about this. Is Listen there with you? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Oh, I, listen, I just wanted to bring you in on the conversation as well, because I know you were also talking about kind of the more legal aspects of this or bylaws uh, that uh, you were saying actually protect people. Uh, what argument uh, are you making or is Red Braid Alliance making as to why the people that are living there are not going to be moving anywhere? Yeah, our argument is that it is not a solution to the housing crisis for the city to be deploying bylaw officers to shuffle people around from site to site. Practically speaking, uh, it, the bylaws prohibit large RVs from parking overnight in virtually all parts of the city. They prohibit them from parking for more than three hours. So um, practically what it would look like for people whose vehicles are their homes to abide by these laws is that they'd have to be driving around constantly. Um, and so our argument is that Vehicles that are also homes should be uh, afforded the same uh, protection as a real home. They're people's, uh, they're necessary for people's personal security and that it's uh, in the context of a housing crisis, the city should absolutely uh, direct its bylaw officers to cease from enforcing bylaws against vehicles that are also homes. Would you like to see any kind of change where there are certain places maybe that are exempt from the bylaw? I mean, if you go through the city, there certainly are. It's not only 12th and Slocan. There are parts of the city where it's quite easy to find uh, RVs, where it's obvious people are living in their vehicles. Uh, Would you like to see exemptions or something that makes it easier for people to do that? Absolutely. I think uh, the bare minimum that the city can do to mitigate the worst aspects of the housing crisis is to make a clear, uh, unequivocal declaration to all people living in vehicles um, to assure them that they will not be ticketed, towed or otherwise penalized uh, with laws that criminalize poverty. So whether that looks like uh, certain areas where people are allowed to park, um, I think it would be better to have a sweeping uh, to have a sweeping policy where any vehicle that is clearly a home uh, should not have typical bylaws uh, enforced against it because you're getting into gray area with people's Section 7 charter rights, where it's not just a vehicle, it's also a home. And in the, again, in the context of the housing crisis, it's uh, um, absolutely uh, inhumane that the city is treating these people's homes like regular vehicles and shuffling them around constantly under the, um, under the persistent uh, stress of uncertainty of not knowing when that eviction notice is going to come.
What about the issue of the fact that this the, this is public property? There have been complaints or concerns about sanitation, about garbage. I know William mentioned that, yeah, he's got a lot of clutter around his place as well. If we're talking about sanitary issues, how do we deal with that? Yeah, so the um, the city's director of streets, Terrence Scollard, spoke to journalists yesterday uh, justifying the displacement here by pointing to, uh, like you say, sanitation, clutter. Uh, she also raised the specter of innocent school children um, whom these campers are uh, ostensibly a threat to. Um, I think we have to dispense with that bureaucratic, narrow framework of how do we keep a street clean? Because the real uh, framework here is the housing crisis. And to suggest that there's a parity between keeping a street free of clutter and protecting people's rights in homes is uh, absolutely dehumanizing. Um, and I think we need to reject that bureaucratic uh, focus because the, the question here is how do we keep people safe who have to live on the streets because it's the best option available to them. Would you like to be working, though, towards uh, another solution as far as uh, you... I, I don't think does anybody really want a scenario where we're we're seeing people living in RVs on every street or every street is kind of turned into some kind of RV area that doesn't seem like the best permanent solution when we're talking about housing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the the permanent solution to the housing crisis is for all levels of government to uh, to be working together in order to create quality social housing that is affordable at shelter and pension rates. So that is an option for every person who's currently living in a vehicle. Many people living in vehicles, I'm sure, would prefer to live in uh, secure housing that is non-market, that is affordable to them, but that's clearly not an option. And the, the way that the municipal government has been dealing with the housing crisis is to uh, use the offer of indoor shelter spaces as a justification for displacement, which is what we saw with the Strathcona tent city. So I agree with you. The the solution is certainly not to um, uh, to just have people living in vehicles because they have no other option. The ultimate solution is to actually build social housing, which the government is uh, absolutely capable of. But in the interim, uh, what we're demanding is that the is that the municipal government um, uh, take its hands off people who are living in their vehicles, and at the very least let them be because they're absolutely exacerbating the housing crisis by criminalizing folks who live in cars and RVs. What do you think is going to happen if enforcement officers do arrive there and enforce the May 26th uh, deadline? Uh, Well, we're calling a rally on the 26th um, uh, to defend this community, and we'll be reaching out to other RV encampments uh, because the city said that they're cracking down on a number of them. So our hope is to use this uh, community's particular struggle um, to really politicize what's happening here and to bring together all people who are facing displacement because they live in cars, as well as people who live in tents, um, uh, to to take a stand and and refuse the normalization of the housing crisis that we see um, the city of Vancouver pushing for. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, listen, are you able to uh, thank William for me? I didn't get to say, uh, to say thank you to him uh, for coming on the show before I passed over the phone. But thanks to you both uh, for coming on the program. We'll be following uh, up on this for sure. Will do. Thank you so thank much you. for having us.